Awesome. Well, you know, this week we're starting a new series in the book of Psalms. And um, over the past few years, I've really begun to love the book of Psalms. And I'll be honest, a um, little confession here. Before that, I didn't really love the book of Psalms. Um, and so my study of the Psalms really started from a conversation I was having uh, with a, a friend of mine. I was, I was sitting at camp a few years ago, probably, three or, or probably four or five years ago now. And we're sitting at camp and we we're talking about the books that we were reading. And we were talking about all the fiction books and nonfiction books we were reading, all the church books and the non-church books we were reading. And then he stopped and he said, so what kind of poetry do you read? So I set down my turkey leg, went and got my ax, chopped some wood and said, I'm a man. I don't read poetry. No, I didn't say that. Um, I may have thought it. I didn't say it. But in my opinion at that point, poetry wasn't really something I was into, right? It, he said, well, you like music, don't you? I was like, yeah, I love music. He's like, it's basically poetry. No, it's not. It's very different. <clears throat> um, he says, you, you love the Bible, don't you? Well, obviously. I mean, come on. I'm, I'm a minister. I love the Bible. He goes, you know, that a third of the Bible is poetry. Ouch. That was just rude. And... and it wasn't very nice, but, but it began to kind of question inside of me. And I realized that to my own credit here, I wasn't a huge fan of like English classes growing up. In fact, another confession, maybe it's just a confession day. I actually failed a six weeks, like we did six weeks back then of English class because I refused to read Jane Eyre. Uh, you can ask my mom about that story later. All right. Um, I mean, I was a sophomore in high school reading Jane Eyre. Come on. Um, Either way, uh, English classes, which led us to read poetry, and a lot of times it was like weird 15th century stuff. I don't know. It's confusing. I didn't get it. I thought poetry was this like whimsical, flighty kind of flowery language. It was all emotional, right? And I, it, it just didn't fit with who I am. And it really lacked structure, and it was ambiguous. You could kind of develop your own meaning. It just, I didn't really like it. And while it can be all of those things, what ended up happening as I began to study the biblical poetry was that poetry can communicate deep feelings and deep truths in a way that narratives and teachings cannot. And so I began as a dare almost to study and read the book of Psalms. And it wasn't just like read the Psalms. It was, I want you to study this. And, and what it became for me was actually something really significant. I began to study. And, and if you will let me and we'll, we'll, dive into it yourself a little bit, what the Psalms can be for you as well is a place for you to find language for the condition that we find ourselves in. And we have to be honest about ourselves. The condition that we find ourselves in is we are human beings that were created to be in close personal relationship with our creator, but we live in a broken world that is constantly buying for our attention and our affections away from him. And what the Psalms can do is kind of reunite us with the world around us that actually maybe actually points us to our creator. And that's precisely why the Psalms were written. Uh, in, in a commentary, there's a guy named Tremper Longman III, great name for a Bible writer, by the way. Right, in his commentary, he says this, the primary use of the book of Psalms, the literary sanctuary, did you hear that? The literary sanctuary during the Old Testament period was in the public corporate worship of Israel. Psalms has rightly been called the hymn book of the Old Testament. So imagine this, Israel has been conquered by foreign nations over and over and over again, and people are getting pulled out of their homes and taken to the far reaches of the Assyrian, the Babylonian, the Persian, the Roman, and the Greek empires. 
And they're living in these foreign places with foreign gods. There's no longer a temple. There's no longer a synagogue. They're living in a world that is radically different than what the Old Testament taught them to live in. And so what they ended up doing was they began to compile these songs and these poems. They began to think about them and recite them over and over again. So when they're in the midst of exile, they remember the faithfulness of God. When they're in the midst of a a world that looks radically different than what God maybe had designed for them, they remembered that there is a God who is steadfast and loving. You could tell a person over and over again that there's a God who loves them unconditionally, who shows steadfast love for them, but it doesn't communicate in the same way that Psalm 136 reminds them over and over again that God's love, God's steadfast love endures forever. And that's precisely what the Psalm set out to do. Later on in his commentary, Longman says, the transmission of information is not only the purpose of the Bible. The transmission of information is not the only purpose of the Bible. Yes, the Psalms do intend to teach theology, but they also arouse the reader's emotions, stimulate their imagination, and appeal to their will. For these purposes, poetry is most effective. And so what if instead of just the transmission of information, which we're kind of obsessed with, we began to read and study the Psalms in ways that relate to how we feel and the condition we find ourselves in and the place that we find ourselves in our world. You know, we kind of have an idol in the Western world about information, right? If you have a question, you just Google it and you'll get 10,326 different opinions about what is being said. Right, we get into arguments and we can't think of what to say. We just say, you know, I haven't found the right answer to prove you wrong yet. It's out there, right? And, and so we kind of have transferred this idea of the gaining of information into our faith. Where we reduce following Jesus, the relationship of intimacy and love and care that God designed to a list of informational rules and settings that we put in place. And imagine if that's what your marriage looked like. Imagine if that's how you parented. It doesn't make sense. And so what the Psalms can do is it can present for us a bigger picture of who God is. It can speak more to our emotions and our feelings. And it can actually deepen truths that we don't actually get if we just read narratives or teachings. And I'll be honest, like this is, this is where I've spent a lot of my life. I love information gathering, right? It's fun, it's easy, and oftentimes I don't have to feel weird about it. But what if the Bible, what if God has something deeper for us? What's also true is when we rely on the transmission of information, what ends up happening is we begin to believe that our faith is our responsibility. Not the responsibility of God and the Holy Spirit. And so what if we decided maybe, maybe just for the summer to open up our horizons a little bit and say, let's dive into the book of Psalms to biblical poetry and see if God can expand our understanding of the world that we live in, about his love, his care for us, about the ways that we can reach out and understand God on deeper levels. What do you think could happen? Well, I think that we could really begin to see God in a different way in our world. I love you. You think about the images that God has put in the book of Psalms that remind us that the world that we live in is still a world that God has designed for us that we can find him in. When we read uh, Psalm 42, there's a deer panting by streams of water. 
When, when, when you dive in to the images created in Psalm 29, or like we'll talk about today, the tree in Psalm 1. Like I can honestly tell you, after diving deep into Psalm 29, that every time I hear thunder now, I think God still speaks. Speaks loudly with power and authority. And I know that. That information is available to me in my brain, but sometimes I don't remember because I live in a world that's constantly distracting me from the things that God wants. And when I hear thunder now, I go straight back to that Psalm 29. This is what poetry can do for us if we let it. And it begins to speak for us also on our behalf. Uh, one, of the, one of the writers that I listen to, he says, you know, most of the Bible speaks to us, but the Psalms speak for us. How many times have you been reading a psalm and it says something and you're like, man, I couldn't put into words what David just wrote here because it speaks on our behalf. Sometimes when I'm in the midst of the pit that I find myself in, the psalms can speak to get me out of it, to remind me that even though many others have found themselves in that same place, there is a good God willing to pull you out. And so what I found is that biblical poetry became almost a, a treasure map for me like a cipher that I needed to unwrap. And so I began to look at the, the, the way it's written. I remember look at the, the symbolism that happens in the story. And I looked at the imagery that they're showing, and I mean, the structure of the, and I began to realize that hidden between all of these images and structures is meaning. And that meaning became deeper and stronger. Now, many of you are like, I've been reading poetry forever and I already know this. Well, I'm late to the game. I'm sorry, all right? But what the Psalms can do for us is give us a much more strong and, and appealing message. And so that's what I want to do. And I want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to, to take some time this week, maybe once a day, if you're willing, and read through Psalm 1 as we do today. Read through it, maybe do it in the morning, in the evening, and see what happens to you. See what happens if you begin to see God in more places in your life. See, uh, we often talk about getting distracted from God. Like the Psalms actually distract us to God. And so if you memorize these things and you study these things, you'll begin to see God in more often in your life. And you'll also begin to be distracted towards God. And so we're going to start today in Psalm 1, right at the beginning. And, and then tomorrow, next week, not tomorrow, we're not doing this. This is not camp. I'm sorry. Still stuck in camp mode there. <laughs> Coming back tomorrow morning for, no, I'm kidding. Zach's got a song for us to sing. Just kidding. Uh, thanks, Tom. Um, no, no, next week we'll talk about Psalm 2. And what, what I love about this is the, the people that compiled the Psalms, they did it with purpose. It's not just like, oh, this one was written then, this was written then, we'll just throw them all together and see what happens. Right? There was people who compiled this for a reason. God kind of ordained all of this to happen. And so the reason we have Psalm 1 and 2 at the beginning is because they are the lens to which we read the rest of the Psalms. The first psalm is about the law of God. The second psalm is about the promise of God. And so if you find yourself in a foreign world, you want to remember that there is a God who still hears you and listens to you and wants what's best for you. There's also a God who promises salvation. So we're going to start in Psalm 1. And so uh, what I'm going to have you guys do is if you would and you're able, would you stand with me? And I'm going to read Psalm 1. So if, if you would... I know I've been speaking for a little bit while. You guys have gotten comfy. Got to wake you up a little bit. But All right, Psalm 1. And if you have it in your Bibles, or it'll be here up on the screen. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, 
nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you pray with me? Dear God, we love that you are a God who speaks to us not only through narrative, not only through teachings, not only through prophecy, but even through poetry. And God, I pray that as we dive into biblical poetry through the Psalms, that we would see past the words on the page, we would see past the images, we would see past the genre, we would see past all of the things that it's trying to communicate and find you. We would find a deeper connection with our creator. And when we find ourselves in the midst of pain and suffering and struggle, that we could find ourselves in a literary sanctuary that is the Psalms. We just pray these things in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Don't get too comfy. You know, I love this psalm, and I honestly probably could preach uh, about an hour and a half worth of sermons on this exact psalm, but I won't do that to you. Um, but, but I love this psalm because of what it communicates as a, a person who, who needs to understand where we start within the law of God. And, and so since I'm already kind of running out of time, we're going to focus on really three words in this psalm that are going to be important. And, and the first word is the first word of the psalm, and the word is blessed. Right? So, some, sometimes this word gets a bad rap. Right? We, we use it a lot in, in a lot of areas of our life, right? And, and oftentimes, maybe some pastors or church leaders have used this maybe in the wrong way. And, and so I want to be clear a little bit before we jump in uh, to talk about what exactly this word means. You see, in Hebrew, right, the language that the Psalms were written in, there's about six or seven different words that get translated in English to blessed, right? The word here is the word esher. I probably said that wrong, but don't hold it against me. And while in the Bible, the word blessed sometimes means the things that you get from God because of faithfulness, not your faithfulness, his faithfulness. But sometimes blessed is what you offer God because of who God is. But in this moment, blessed is not neither one of those two words. But in this moment, it is the state of well-being or happiness that comes from the favorable position you find yourself in. Let me say that again. The state of well-being or happiness that comes from the favorable position you find yourself in. That you can actually be blessed because of how you see God and how God is faithful to you, no matter what situation you find yourself in. And, and think about this. The book of Psalms was written to, or written for people, compiled for people who were existing in exile. They were existing in a world where they had no sanctuary. They had no synagogue. They had no temple to worship. And so the psalm became a place for them to worship. And so if you want to be blessed in the midst of exile, pay attention. Pay, pay attention to what's about to happen. And so we often jump to this, good things are going to happen to you, blessed. Like good things will happen. And, and I want to ask you the question, do you think Jesus was blessed? It'd be hard for me to say no, right? I mean, 
Jesus was Jesus. He was blessed by God, obviously. Now, did bad things happen to Jesus? Yes. So maybe our idea of blessing isn't a full understanding of blessing. Maybe Jesus, in the midst of all the pain and suffering that he went through, found himself maybe in a little sanctuary with his God, with his Father. You see, blessed is not about what you can receive from God. Blessed is the place you find yourself when you're going through the midst of trials. And God is still walking through it with you. It'd be easy when you're in the midst of exile to forget that God still loves you and cares for you and wants to bless you. It's easy for us to go through our lives and look at the world around us and forget that there is a God who still loves you, cares for you, and wants to bless you. And please let this be true for you and I today. As we find ourselves in the midst of exile with craziness all around us, people are turning bad things into good and good things into bad. When our kids experience the brokenness of our world, when struggle happens, when pain shows up, when conflict arises, please let it be true for us. We don't have to descend into depression and anxiety and fear, but we too can be blessed. Please let that be true. Oh God, we need the Psalms. See, but that's not the only word that I love in this psalm. The, the next word, as we, as we continue, it says, blessed is the man. And I, I want to just point out here, uh, this is a singular figure that is represented by both men and women, right? There is, there is no gender-specific pronoun um, or gender non-specific pronoun in our culture that would talk like this. So they just use the man, all right? Make sense? Not to get political on this. You guys are good with that? So it is, it is in no way denying women the right to be blessed is, is what I'm trying to communicate there, all right? And so blessed is the person, but specifically the human being person, right, who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. See, notice the progression here, right? That, that they don't walk they don't stand and they don't sit, right? They don't, they don't walk. They don't walk in, in the counsel of the wicked. They don't stand in the way of sinners. They don't sit in the seat of scoffers, right? Never are they in a place where wickedness or people who are against God, never are they a place where they are participating in what's going on there. And if you're reading this and you're thinking this is a song, song book for the Old Testament, right? Like, like Longman III tells us. If you're thinking that, then there should be words that jump off the page at you. And if you're, if you're a good Jewish person that grew up in this culture and you're in exile and you're remembering the good things of God, when you hear these words, your mind goes straight back to one of the most significant things that you recite every single day, and that is the Shema. All right, back in Deuteronomy 6, if you want to turn back there, in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says... Uh, God kind of defines who he is and what he desires out of us. And he sums up all of the law into two statements. Deuteronomy 6, uh, verse 4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Right? This is who I am. You shall love Yahweh, the Lord your God, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I have commanded you today shall be on your heart. Listen to this. You shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house. When you walk, by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise. And if you're, 
If you're a Jewish person living in exile, you still get up every morning and you recite the Shema over and over again to remind yourself that there's a God who still loves you and wants you. And you connect it to Psalms, and it's almost as if they work together to communicate a deeper message. Hey, when you're in the midst of exile, don't go stand and sit and walk with those who are going to lead you away from God. Go back and do what God called us to do back in Deuteronomy 6 and walk with God and teach your kids and teach your families. When you sit down, teach your kids and teach your families. When you go, when you come, when you rise, when you lay down, all the time, remind yourself that you should be following God. Like God is reminding us, the psalmist here is reminding us that God's calling is for us to walk, stand, and sit with him and his law, not with those others out there. And the reason is because his law, underneath that is a value system that God uses to judge the world. Right, that God creates these laws for us, and he says, do not do these things, but underneath those things is that God values human life, right? We don't murder, not because God just says don't murder, because God is a God who values human life. And underneath that is his personality. And underneath that is his character. And underneath that is what? Himself. You see, the law of God should lead us not back to more rules and regulations. The law of God should lead us back to God. And when we read the Psalms, when we study God's word and we delight in what God is calling us to study and read, what we get is more God. And that is what being blessed means. And that's what it goes on to the next section here because it says, uh, the second word, it says that you will delight. That we will, we will delight in the law of the Lord. Right? nor sits in the seat of the but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And the word delight is kind of a weird word, right? I, I don't know. There are some people that still use delight. It's a little bit weird, um, right? But we do delight things still, right? Like I delight in Dr. Pepper and sushi, right? Like I, I enjoy them. I crave them, all right? I, I delight in my children. I delight in my wife and my relationship with her. Now, one of those things is slowly killing me. I'm not gonna tell you which one. But delight is something that we do. It's something that we crave. It's something that we enjoy. And when we enjoy the law of God, what happens? We understand how to live in this world. We understand the personality and character of our God, and we ultimately understand God himself. Right? Delight is what we should do. We should crave. We should desire. We should want more of God. And when we love God and when we love others, which God sums up all the commandments into, we get more God. And when we get more God, we want more God. And when we want more God, we want more God. And it just continues. Right? The reason why I love going back to Tanglewood each year after each year is because those kids drive me crazy. But I get to spend a week in a place where I'm reminded of my relationship with God. And when I walk into that camp, I am remembered of how I crave that relationship and that connection that I get when I am on those campgrounds. See, the, the reason that you and I love God is because God has loved us. We've experienced that love, and we love him more. We should crave that. We should want that. Right? And, and even if we can't communicate that in our brains, we pray that this psalm can do it for us. Then it says that on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, meditation kind of gets a bad rap. Right? We, we, when we think of meditation, we think of like Eastern meditations where you like empty your mind 
Um, that's not what we're talking about, right? Uh, like lucid dreaming, some of those other weird things that happen. Listen, don't do that, right? We, speaking of another sermon entirely, right? What, what is communicated here in meditation is the Hebrew idea of mutterings, right? Like mutterings, like you just repeat something over and over again. And maybe you say it out loud, maybe you say it very quietly to yourself, right? But you repeat things over and over again. And so imagine if you're going through your day and you're repeating over and over again, I should love the Lord my God with all my heart, my soul, my mind, and my strength. Love my neighbors, myself, right? When that person in your job comes up and begins yelling at you because whatever reason, what if you started muttering, I love the Lord your God, your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. Like what if when your kids misbehave and you want to just wring their necks, you think, love the Lord your God. You see how the law of God in the midst of exile can actually lead you back to God. It can lead you back to the place where you need to be. But the only way for us to do that is if we actually memorize these words. It's only if we memorize what's going on here. I love, if you start reading the Psalms pretty significantly, I've noticed this a lot, is Jesus doesn't say a lot of new things. I don't know if you've ever caught on to that. Like, he repeats a lot of the Psalms. He, like, starts them for you and then expects you to finish them because everyone that he was talking to had most of them memorized. All right, and we'll talk about that, you know, next week. I almost said tomorrow again. Well, next week we'll talk about that again, and we'll talk about it in a few weeks in Psalm 22 of what Jesus is trying to communicate to us. You see, but we have to memorize these things. We have to know them. We have to sing them. Like, when you guys leave here, many of you aren't going to remember much of what I preached today, but you'll remember some of the songs we sing. Because poetry and music have a way of just sticking in our brains in a new and different way. So what if we did that with the Psalms? Like, what if we came back and memorized Psalm 1 next week? What would that do for you and your soul? Well, this is what it says. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. I'm going to pause there for a minute. But what the psalmist is doing here is it's showing us two pictures. You have a tree by water, right? Trees do really well by water, right? If you've probably been alive long enough to know that trees without water don't do well. Trees with water do well. Like that's common knowledge, right? But, but, but imagine a tree that is in the midst of flowing water, right? Imagine in my mind, I'm imagining like uh, when I was a kid, we went to like Lakey, um, to the Frio river and there was all these trees over the winter, over the river there. And you could like tube down the river and you could stop and grab onto like a tree limb. And there was like shade or like a rope. And it was beautiful, and the tree was huge, and it had huge leaves, and it was, it was awesome. Right? That probably wasn't the trees that they were thinking of. Um, they were probably like olive trees or, or smaller trees like that. But, but either way, the idea is still there. Right? And then the contrasting idea is, is chaff. Right? Now, I'd encourage you today at some point, go to HEB or your grocery store you use and ask them if they have some chaff. Right? They'll probably send you to the medical section because they thought you said chaff, but that's, again, another story. Chaff is what's left over from the harvest, right? My family grew up in Nebraska. I'm supposed to be somewhat of a farmer. My garden, I can't do a garden. My wife is doing one. Uh, either way, the chaff is what we would rip open when we were shucking corn. And we would throw it away. Now, some of you use that to make tamales, and that's awesome of you, all right? But in the most part, in the Midwest, they would throw it away, and it would dry up, and it would just blow away. 
When I was a kid, I grew up in South Texas and there were sugarcane fields. And they would burn the sugarcane and all the leftovers would just float out into the sky. And there were these little burnt pieces that would fly all over the place. And sometimes you would swallow them when you're playing soccer and it was uncomfortable. True story. Right? Chaff is pointless. Right? It's left to be gone. And so you have these two pictures. Do you want to be a tree or do you want to be chaff? Well, obviously, we want to be a tree. And this is what happens to a person who prospers and is blessed by God, which is our third word. It's prosper. Now remind yourself, you're in the midst of exile. You're living in a foreign land, and God wants you to prosper? I don't want to prosper here. I want to go home. What does prosper mean here? You see, prosper in God's currency is different than ours. Right? In our information-driven world, right, that side of me says A plus B equals C. Right? If I'm faithful to God and I don't walk and sit and stand with those other people, God will bless me financially and I will prosper and have a good business and money and lots of kids and family. But that's not at all what this writer is saying. Because good fortune is not what prospering in the kingdom of God looks like. Right? Because Jesus didn't live in good fortune. He didn't have a bunch of money when he left the earth. But prosper goes back to what we've been talking about. When you don't walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners, or you don't sit in the seat of scoffers, but your delight is in the law of the Lord, God will prosper your delight in the Lord. He will prosper the meditation that you are doing on his law day and night. He will prosper you as a tree with strong leaves and fruit in its season. He will provide water for your roots and sunshine for your leaves. See, for you and I, prosper may, may mean financial wealth. But for the most part, it means a deeper connection with your creator. See, I, if you come to church and you've looked for faith and you think financial gain is what comes out of that, you have a very short-sighted view of salvation. Because prospering means that you and I get unrestricted access to our creator to learn and grow, to understand his value system, to understand his personality and his character so that we can be transformed into his likeness and one day spend eternity with him without any hindrance whatsoever. Prosper means we get salvation through what's coming in Psalm 2. See, it says, therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Listen, you can stand with the wicked now, but you won't be standing with Jesus later. You, you have the choice to walk with God now or walk away from him in the future. He, he is coming to bring salvation, right? In the idea of the Psalms here. And he, on this side of it, we know who Jesus is and what he brought. But prospering and delighting and meditating and being blessed is not about all the things that we get while we're in exile. It's all the things that we get while we're in exile. And that is a deeper connection with our God and a sanctuary, a safe place to know him. And I love this. 
because it says, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. The Lord knows. He knows you. He doesn't know of you. He didn't know about you. He didn't know or will know or all the grammatical wrong things I could say there. He knows every fiber of who you are, and he still wants to bring you out of exile into his kingdom. He wants to know you and be known by you. Psalm 37, 31.7 says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. He walks through it. He knows what you're going through. Psalm 37, 18, the Lord knows the days of the blameless and their heritage will remain forever. Nahum 1, 7, the Lord is good, a stronghold in the day of trouble. He knows those who take refuge in him. John 10, 14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And 2 Timothy 2, 19a, but God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his. When we find ourselves in the midst of exile, we have to remember that there is a God who knows us. And if we want to be blessed, we have to know and meditate delight in his law. Maybe you've come here this morning and you're like, you know, I am that tree. I, I am that tree that knows that I need nourishment and foundation from God. I, I want to encourage you. Share that with other people. But you may have walked in here today and you feel more like chaff. You've recognized that you've bought into the fact that this exile is pretty comfortable. And so you surround yourself and you walk and you sit and you stand with maybe, I don't know if you'd call them wicked, but definitely not the value system that God entails. I want to encourage you, read the Psalms. But there's a God who wants to bless you. There's a God who wants to prosper you. There's a God who knows you. And he's given his word for us and his law for us to know him. So maybe this season of Psalms is a chance for you to lean in in a way that you've never done before. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you stand. I'm going to read this one more time. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing one more song together. I want to encourage you. Take some time this week. Read through this a few more times. Turn on your phone on your way to work, whatever it is. We're, I'm going to read this. We're going to sing together, and then, and then we'll go enjoy a, a meal together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on it he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Would you pray with me? God, it is somewhat overwhelming to think that the God of the universe wants to know us. 
that the God of the universe desires a relationship and that we have access to that relationship through his word and through his promised Messiah, who is Jesus, who made the way for us to know God and be known by him again. God, I pray as we are people who are living in an exiled world, that we would recognize our need to be blessed and prospered, to delight and to know you. God, I pray that the Psalms would not just be something that we talk about on Sundays, God, but it would be our personal sanctuary where we can go and find a deep connection with you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.